We are going to walk through the debate between Sam Harris and Ben Shapiro, moderated by Eric Weinstein, on the existence of God and the necessity for that for any kind of moral foundation. We're also going to be introducing something very special today uh, that we're going to be taking on here at In Layman's Terms. It honestly scares me to death, but we're going to try to fund a water well project in Kenya, Africa. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. So that is the stuff when I talk about the necessity for reason, uh, that, that's the stuff I think that is more relevant. Now, I think that you do need a religious system in order to inform people who are not going to sit around philosophizing all day uh, what are good and bad modes of behavior. I have an evil plan to save the world for every man, and I think it's better than the way it's being run. Okay, so we are going to walk through this debate that's come out between Ben Shapiro and Sam Harris. And Eric Weinstein is involved as well. It should, it should be really interesting. And I'm kind of doing this blind. I haven't actually listened to this thing, so we're going to kind of try to walk through it uh, step by step, see how it goes here, see where you know we, we can learn something uh, as as Christians and how we can we can maybe even add to, to what's going on here. But, but before we get started with that, uh, I want to introduce something really special we're doing here at In Layman's Terms. Many of you heard me talk about Kenyan Christian Arts and Fred Ancho and their village uh, of Tabaka in the in the county of Kisi in Kenya. Uh, after a lot of research, a lot of looking around, trying to figure out how to get this done, they, they need fresh water. And what I'm going to do is direct you to go to our website, and you can see some of the pictures of uh, Fred and those of, uh, of his village trying to gather water from local streams, which sometimes, well, every day it's a struggle to try to gather that much water. If you, you know, I grew up on a farm, so I know, I know what it's like to carry five gallon bucket of water, uh, five gallon buckets of water around. It's very difficult. It's hard work. And it, it, you know, it just takes potential out of your day. Uh, You know, imagine if instead of going to the tap for a drink of water, you had to go down to the stream and scoop it out with a five gallon bucket of water that you had to carry on your head for half a mile. That's that's what they have to go through to get water there. And the village there in, uh, of Tabaka in Kenya has a lot of potential. Uh, I've met Fred over a year ago, and it, I, I am convinced if we can get him this fresh water well, uh, this is really going to maximize their potential. And I have all the details of it on the website. We've got to raise a considerable amount of money. So what I'm asking everyone to do, we've got enough people that listen to and download this podcast that if everyone were to give $50 one time to this project, we could cover cover the expenses on this. And this is not just a, you know, somebody going in there and kind of hand drilling a well and they're they're going to have to go hand pump it. This is a really for for Kenya, really and really anywhere, it's a state of the art water well that's that's going to open up the possibility of industrialization to this community, to these people, and and really maximize the potential of their stone carving uh, work there. They do some beautiful art, and if you've done, uh, you know what what I've asked in the past, and go check out Kenyan Christian Arts, you can see kind of some of the work they do, and and we want to maximize that potential for them. And Fred is convinced that if we can get this in there, uh, that the sky is going to be the limit for it. So. We're going to go for this. Uh, it's it's very scary for, for me to raise this amount of money. I've never asked anyone for a dime on this podcast. It's always been free. It will continue to be free. I thought about putting it behind a paywall uh, so more people would give to this project, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue to, to make the 
the podcast free, and we're going to bring on some some special guests. I've got a, a couple of of guests willing to to come on uh, that will hopefully you know bolster our downloads and that sort of thing, and and, and enable this project to go forward. Uh, but you know, I'm good truck driving. I love truck driving. Driving. You know, I, I thought about a lot of times. You know, maybe I could be a full time podcaster and that sort of thing. But it's but it's honestly not something that I'm interested in. It's not something that my wife is interested in. And um, I enjoy driving trucks, and I enjoy doing this for you guys for free. It helps me to think things through. This is really the main reason why I started the podcast, to help me think through things. And hopefully, as you listen to it, help you think through uh, various aspects of the Christian faith. But but we've never asked for money here. We're not trying to make a living off of this. And, and the reason I think this is exciting is because this money we're going to raise, I, I've devised kind of a... You know what? What would I say? A complicated way of of giving to this, and, and you'll see the details on the website when you go there on how to give. Um, and, and you know, if if that's too complicated to you, you can send me an email. I can shoot you my address, and you can send me a check. It's it's as simple as that. Uh, but but there's a way we can give electronically that's not good, that where we're not going to be uh, charged a lot of fees. Uh, right now, PayPal charges about three percent. So the amount of money we're having to raise. Uh, that's going to take a big chunk out of it. I don't want to pay PayPal uh, to to have to get this this thing done. This is what we call direct giving. We're trying to get this money that we're giving directly to the people in Kenya. We're doing this in country. We're using a company that is based out of Nairobi, and they will they will make a profit off of this, which is good. Um, and this will benefit Fred's community and Tabaka uh, just in ways we we can't even fathom. So. I really hope people will get on board with this, and we'll, we'll just we'll just plug away at it until we until we raise the money to make this happen. So so we're excited about that, and and to get it started off, uh, hopefully with, with with something pretty exciting at the beginning of the year here. You know, something that's um, that's really uh, debated and talked about in the, in the realm of the, of politics and, and these sorts of things is do we do we need God for a moral foundation? Uh, in order to to have an objective reality, that's that's really the big question, and that's that's one of the big questions I have about atheism. That was one thing I considered a long time ago was, well, maybe I should just go ahead and be an atheist. But but I run, I always run into the brick wall of how is my reason going to uh, going to land me in, in a morality that I know is correct, that I know is the proper morality, and I'm convinced that without an outside source, you know, we Lutherans talk about this as. Uh, that Latin phrase, extra nos, outside of ourselves. We need something outside of the human experience in order to inform us what is uh, morally right and wrong. And without that, it just becomes a matter of subjectivism. There's really no real way in which we can arrive at a morality uh, that is not our own. So in other words, if Sam Harris comes up with a, a moral structure, which may be very much like our own, why should we trust him? Why does he have the authority to dictate to us based on his reason that this is moral? See, um, so so we really need a third party to come in here and to dictate that to us. And the only third party that's available to us is God. And uh, that that's, I think, where this debate is going to go. Um, there's other ways to prove God's existence. There's there's all kinds of ways throughout human history that that people have used to try to to prove God's existence. One one of my favorite ways is to start with the resurrection, uh, but we, we just want to see where this thing goes today, and see where this this debate happens. We're going to walk through uh, as much of it as we can here. Maybe we'll do two weeks on it. We'll kind of just see how interesting it is, 
and and how helpful it is to us and and how we can critique it and uh and and see where the intellectual debate in our larger society is going but i'm happy to see that some of these these heavy hitting intellectuals especially in the political realm are, are considering this guy like like ben shapiro uh who, who says that we absolutely cannot survive uh, without the format, uh, without the foundation of Judeo-Christian ethics, and I think he's absolutely right about that. Um, although I do, do think his argument has some flaws, so we're going to explore that. That's the things we're going to do today. We're going to encourage, encourage you to start donating uh, to this project. It may take a while. Uh, who knows? Uh, it, you know, if it ta- if it takes whatever amount of time it, it's going to take, we're, we're going to work on it, and we're going to try to can, continue to bring you programming that is helpful to you. And hopefully, we can get enough people together. Uh, to make this whole thing happen. Uh, so in the meantime, um, we're going to, we're going to cover this debate. (laughs) Um, I'm obviously very nervous about this whole thing. It's, it's a pretty big endeavor. I I tried to go through some channels that, uh, you know, with some people with some more experience with, with something like this. Uh, but while I'm nervous about it, I am very excited because I think, again, we're going to be able to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that that American uh, charitable organizations fall into. You know, we're not Sally Struthers up there, you know, trying to get people to donate uh, to children because you know Sally's getting paid a salary for this. You know, we're 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 not uh, a big org- organization like World Vision who has to pay salaries to people to uh, you know to keep their infrastructure going. No, all this money is going to the people in Kenya, including the people that are doing the work, and so. Uh, we're excited about it. Uh, we're hoping to bring you some, continue to bring you the the kind of quality program that's that's uh, that's causing you to to download this and listen to it. We don't do a lot of marketing. Most of this is word, uh, word of mouth, and that's how we've kind of spread it. Uh, I've not made one dime off of it, uh, you know, since we began. Anything that's come in, I've I've put right back into the podcast. So you know, I've never used any of the money to, uh, and it's been very little. It's been under five hundred dollars. So, uh, so, so we're hoping that we can really, uh, at this point, turn monetize the thing and monetize it in a way that's going to do something uh, just really fantastic for people who uh, are very much less fortunate than we are. And we hope you guys will be excited about it, and it'll be something you'll be willing to give to. Like I say, for the amount of downloads we get, if we could just get everyone to donate at least fifty dollars, uh, we could get it done. Fifty dollars one time, you know. Um, I know some people that may be a lot of money to you and, and that's fine. You can donate whatever you want, but I think for most of us, $50 is nothing. And if we could just say, Hey, you know, I'm willing to part with $50 this one time to see this thing happen. Um, I think we could, uh, we could really see something amazing happen anyway. All right. So I'm not quite sure how to articulate that. We'll keep trying to say it better as we go along. But for now, let's go ahead and get started on this program of waking up with Sam Harris with Ben Shapiro. Um, uh, facilitated by Eric Weinstein and uh, we'll see how this debate goes and see how it's helpful to us and, and you know you, you can imagine the course we're going to chart here uh, I, I want to start with Ben because he, he's had a truly unusual experience I, and, and many of you may not be aware of just how unusual and this will take us into areas of agreement, Ben, where you know, we definitely agree, which is around the primacy of free speech and how strange our national conversation is on so many topics. So Ben is, if you don't know, is, is the person who, when he goes to Berkeley, requires 
at Berkeley University, uh, requires $600,000 worth of security to give a speech. Uh, we have a little bit less security here tonight, so <laughs> please behave yourselves. Uh, but so it's a bit, Ben, what, what's, been, what's been going on? What has it been like to be you in the last two years? Confusing. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I, I've always been a little bit bewildered by the scope of the opposition at these college speeches because I don't actually think that my message is supremely controversial. Uh, it's pretty mainstream conservative. Uh, and yet, when I show up on campuses at Cal State Los Angeles, there was a near riot. When I went to Berkeley, obviously, they required a fair bit of security, uh, thanks to Antifa. Uh, and when I was at uh, DePaul, Univer DePaul University, banned me outright. Uh, they threatened to arrest me if I stepped foot on their campus. Uh, even though the students had uh, invited me. Uh, University of Wisconsin, they actually tried to pass a law banning the heckler's veto, basically, mm -hmm. after I spoke at University of Wisconsin. So I, I think it has far less to do with me than it does with this kind of mood in the country that's, that's so polarized and so crazed. And I would say, with regard to college campuses, unique to the political left. I'm not seeing a lot of it from the political right. The political right certainly has its own problems at this point in time. But what's going on on campuses is, uh, is something that, you know, I've been speaking on college campuses for most of my career, so 15 mm -hmm. years, and only in the last couple have I needed security. The first time I ever acquired security guards was last year, and right. now, you know, every place I go, I have to have security guards when it's a public event. So, and, and you also you're getting it from both sides in a way that's completely surreal. Because so, for instance, you were often disparaged as a Nazi or a white supremacist, and yeah, yet it's, you were, it's the you were, that gives me away on that. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even if you were not going to notice the yarmulke, uh, it you were actually the most targeted victim of anti-Semitism in, what, 2016? Uh, yeah, among journalists on yeah, Twitter, among, anyway. Yeah. yeah, It is upside down. And you're also often compared to your former Breitbart colleague, Milo Yiannopoulos, right? And, and that's, yeah, that's an unfortunate pairing because it means the reason why I'm, I'm, I wanted to talk to you is because while I think you and I will disagree about several maybe foundational things... <laughs> I see you as someone who is sincerely defending a position based on kind of a rational chain of argumentation, based on first principles that we may or may not share. But you're not a performance artist, uh, and that's a crucial distinction. And I mean, that's at least what I'm going for, right? I mean, I, I, I've always thought that what I'm trying to do anyway is say things that I think are true, and if they piss you off, they piss you off. But I'm not going in there with the idea I need to piss somebody off to make a headline. Okay, so <clears throat> the way Shapiro is setting this up so far is is exactly where... I imagine this would go. See, because he's going into a situation where he's got opposition to his message. And so the bottom line is going to be who gets to decide whose message is correct. Now, now right now, it seems like that there are some who think that the way to get authority and power uh, is through means of violent protest. And that is one way to get power through the end of a gun. So I've got a bigger gun than you. I've got more people than you. I've got whatever it is that it takes. It costs you $600,000 to come on this campus and present your message. Then that's, that's a lot of power that, uh, that, that one side. So the $600,000 you know, money is another thing that represents power. And so if it costs somebody like Ben Shapiro $600,000, to go on a campus and speak, or it costs whoever that's bringing him in to, to do that. that. That takes a lot of power away from Shapiro's message. 
and gives a lot of power to those who are in protest of his message. All right, so that's one way to do it. We can do it with money or at the end of a gun. But I think what Shapiro is going to present here is that we need something else, something more peaceful in order to arbitrate who has the authority uh, to affirm or deny any kind of message when it, when it comes to morality and the way should, we, we should be thinking. All right, so uh, I think it's important that we, that, that we play that bit of the, of the debate to show the position a guy like Shapiro is in uh, and to show that, that you've got Shapiro's message and then you've got this other message and who has the authority to decide whose message uh, is going to be listened to or accepted or if, if you know, and, and these sorts of things. And I, I'm with these guys on the free speech thing. I think everybody should be able to say what they think. This is very helpful. If everybody can say what they think, then we can have a conversation about whose position is right and wrong. But then the question comes, who is the who has the authority to, to decide whose message is right and wrong at the end of the day? Because you have two opposing sides and you might say, well, this one's more rational than that one. But who gets to say that rationality should win out over emotion? See, and that's where we need an outside source to come in and to to manage this. Uh, to mediate this, see? And that's one thing I love about Christianity, uh, and particularly about the Lutheran faith, is that we believe Jesus Christ is the mediator, right? He's the one who's going to mediate these positions, and the one we need to find out whose interpretation is the correct one of, of the position of Holy Scripture, and the one we the, the one that we should adopt that will... Um, that will move us forward uh, in these sorts of things. Okay. So, so that really bottom line, layman's term stuff here, what's going on here is there, there's a struggle for authority and power. And how is it going to be dictated? Who gets the authority and power? And that's, that's not an easy question to answer unless you have an outside source. All right, let's continue on. That's why I've always found this a little bit puzzling, because there are provocateurs whose job it is to go into a university, say something deliberately provocative just to get a rise out of people and get a headline. Uh, and since that really is not my M.O., I've been sort of puzzled, frankly, by the level of opposition uh, on, on all sides. It was, it was yeah. a very weird year. I mean, last year was a weird year. I, they, I had the alt-right calling me uh, a Black Lives Matter activist and Black Lives Matter calling me an alt-righter. So it was... It was, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a unique time. 2016, we're still living in a parallel universe in which Marty McFly actually did not stop Biff from using the sports yearbook. Well, one lens through which I want us to view the, this conversation is really two lenses. It's, it's what most worries you and what most interests you at this point. Let's start with the, the worry. Where, where are you in, at this moment? Well, I, I guess for me... Um... I've tried to localize my concern with the breakdown of what I call semi-reliable communal sense-making. Um, if something happens... It's uh, a very are, Eric Weinstein phrase. <laughs> <laughs> this is the reason my Twitter follower account is the orders of magnitude below yours. Uh, the, um, the idea being that if something happens uh, and everybody in the audience processes it, uh, we will fall into certain clusters, and those clusters are fairly reliable and dependent. And so, you know, to, to Ben's point that he is uh, both Black Lives Matter and uh, alt-right in this Schrodinger superposition. Um, mm -hmm. 
So what, what is that? And it has to do with the fact that traditionally we've used institutions to guide our sense-making and to make sense of things collectively, and that has now gone away. And so depending upon um, what institutions I'm hooked up to, what was my last, where did the, the fox you know, last have the scent, um, I can be at odds with a, somebody I love, somebody who I've thought about as a, somebody I've shared a life with, uh, mm-hmm. because there's no longer any way to do this communal. And the semi-reliable, I don't think that Walter Cronkite was actually always telling us the truth, but it was in some sense, you know, to first approximation close enough that there was a, nas- a national consciousness belief structure. There was enough shared uh, sort of complex for us to function as a country, and I think that that's gone away. So I think. Okay, so what Weinstein is bringing up here is is really critical. He's he's hitting on exactly now. If I were Shapiro, I would jump all over this cuz Shapiro's going to try to argue for God here, I think. <laughs> um that's what he was brought in for uh, at any rate. Uh that that we need this this arbiter, this third party that's outside of everybody to dictate the terms. And in the past, it has been stuff like news organizations and the institutions that we've set up in this country. And one of the institutions that I think Shapiro is going to argue for is the institution of, well, in his case, the synagogue, and in our case, the church. Now, I think the synagogue has some deficiencies, which we might be able to point out as we go along here. Uh, but there, there's this fear of, of the institution of the church and looking to uh, the church for a source of authority. And, and that's that's... That's a fine argument uh, because with without the voice of God behind that, because th- at the end of the day, that's what I think everybody's looking for here is a voice of authority that we can trust. And unfortunately, the church has, you know, done some some damage to itself and establishing and uh, in, in pointing to God's voice. And I think this is the value of, of what Martin Luther and the Reformers tried to do was to point to God's voice in Scripture and to say, God's voice is in Scripture. Now, let's debate about what that voice is telling us. See, um, that that's a legitimate debate. And, and a debate I rarely get into. Okay, here's a passage of Scripture. What is this passage of Scripture trying to tell us? We all agree that, that, that this is a voice of authority. Indeed, it is God's voice. And so, as such, we need to figure out what it's trying to say to us, and it only has one possible interpretation that's going to move things forward. And so, hopefully, Shapiro's going to jump on this and say, yeah, that's the problem. The problem is, is that we, we've gravitated away uh, from, from these institutions that have helped us to navigate these things in the past and, and we've gravitated to an extreme individualism or an extreme collectivism where, you know, in the, in the, in the individual sense, and this is the problem with reason and, and the, the, the philosophy of objectivism. You talk about Ayn Rand and these sorts of things. Even Jordan Peterson, one of my favorite philosophers, um, is uh, Stephen Hicks. Uh, who, who does a fantastic job of, of explaining postmodernism, but then says the antidote to that is is objectivism. And at the end of the day, I, I cannot track the logic that shows me that objectivism doesn't ultimately end up being subjectivism, individualism. And so, you know, the problem with that is, is that uh, we don't all reason in the same way. 
And some of us have chosen, the, a la the postmoderns, to elevate uh, emotion above reason. And so how, how do we rectify those two things? What authority is going to come along and say, no, no, reason is superior to emotion? And I think Holy Scripture teaches us this. I think nature teaches us this in some ways. Um, but but it's a very difficult debate because because it is coming from a subjective standpoint. I, I, you know, as much as even the moniker of objectivism, you know, where we use reason, where we elevate reason to a magisterial state, um, is is difficult to establish something with which establishing authority is very difficult. See, and so these institutions that Weinstein is talking about that we've kind of lost. You know, you mentioned Walter Cronkite. He was, you know, he's one of these institutions where we said, okay, well, whatever Walter Cronkite says, that's what we're going to accept as truth. See, it's a third party outside of the two debating parties who are saying, no, this is what is reality. But the, but at the end of the day, um, even these news organizations, Walter Cronkite, they're subjective. See, they're subjective to that to to those people. And so why do they get to dictate to us what is true and what isn't? Uh, but what Weinstein is hitting on here is a very important point that, that we need something outside of ourselves to dictate, to dictate these terms. Okay. Hopefully you're, you're, you're tracking with me on that. Let's, let's get a little, <coughs> a little more in here and, and see what, what happens. I think this is the parent of the crisis, which I increasingly think of as this, uh, you know, I call it the no-name revolution or the N-squared revolution, where in some sort of new regime, which doesn't look like any revolution we've seen before, it's much less physically violent so far, uh, it's digitally extremely violent, and it has to do with the fact that we can't make sense of things communally mm-hmm. at, at some semi-reliable level. And what are the ideas or sets of ideas that you think are most culpable for bringing us here? Well, it's it's tough. I think that what really happened, if, if we think about it historically, is... Okay, before we go on here, let me try to explain what, what they're talking about here. Again, it's the, it's this extreme individualism where, yes, you know, as, as far as that goes, it may be... Uh, you know, it's fine as long as as long as we can reason things out on an individual level. Generally speaking, that's fine. But what the problem is is when we come into conflict with another person. So, so I reason that A is true, and then I run into an individual who has reasoned that B is true, and so now we've come into this into a conflict as individuals, and we're not be and because of that conflict, we're not able to live in community. We're not able to agree. Either we have to ignore. The conflict and say, well, the conflict is there, but we're just going to gloss over and ignore it, which is really a false sense of agreement and and community. And, and, you know, by the way, uh, Lutherans out there, this is why we we uh, have said, you know what, we are not going to commune with people that we don't agree with. We're not going to say that we that we agree or ignore the disagreement when there is a genuine source or, or, or foundation for agreement. We, we have said, no, we're going to strive for genuine agreement. That's really, see, a lot of people, you know, you know, most you guys out there, my Lutheran listeners, my Christian listeners, um, you're like, well, why are, why are we so, why do we have to disagree on every little point? Why, do, why are we disagreeing on these things? Aren't you just being cantankerous and controversial and overreacting? And, and maybe some of that's true. Maybe, maybe there are things that we disagree on 
that we should say, okay, this, this is something that perhaps, um, we can let go. Uh, but that, but the thing of it is there's a, there's a lot of major points, um, in theology and, and from scripture that, that we disagree on that we can't genuinely say, Hey, we're together on this, or we, we just can't simply overlook it. That's, that's the problem. So we have opinion A and opinion B based presumably on reason, maybe emotion. And those two things come into conflict. How do we resolve that and say, Hey, let's seek a genuine agreement here. Not one where we just gloss over our, our differences, uh, uh, and, and pretend like they don't exist. Uh, or, or, or even worse, uh, pretend like our disagreements really, really aren't a real disagreement, and just pretend like we actually agree when we don't agree. But saying, "Hey, we have a real disagreement here. How are we going to resolve this? Who's going to come in and say this is what's right?" Okay. Is that we had this beautiful period of fairly reliable, high, evenly distributed, technologically led growth after World War II up until about let's say 1970, and we predicated all of our institutions on this expectation that this growth was some sort of normal thing uh, that we could, we could depend upon in the future. When it ran out, um, we were left with all of our institutions looking in some form or another like Ponzi schemes. And in order to keep running an institution that expected growth in a steady state condition, let's say, um, you need to change the narrative to create some sort of as-if growth story. So you start stealing from the future, you start stealing from groups that are too weak to defend their own economic interests so that certain slices can keep growing, even if the pie mm. doesn't grow so well. There are certain areas that kept growing, like communications and, and, and computation. Uh, so there was some real growth, maybe fracking. But that in general, what we have is we have a bunch of institutions that used to be capable of honesty that had to develop narratives. And that the problem is we've had as-if growth uh, across the spectrum for most of our adult lives. And that story, which is a fiction, ran out. Um, so, so is that the, well... I mean, That's the genesis of it. That, I mean, so you actually think economics is the, the longest lever here that's influencing the machine? I mean, like, this breakdown of our, this failure of, of polite conversation to get us to converge on a meaningful worldview. Well, if you, if, you, if you chase it all the way up the chain, I mean, markets are, are in some sense the continuation of uh, natural and sexual selection by other means. And we don't realize that when we look out at the city um, that nobody is telling people where to drive, what to do. Uh, it's sort of self-organized with uh, markets being this kind of invisible fabric that keeps us together. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's really important that when growth stops uh, proceeding at, at the levels that it's expected, people can't form families in real time, so fertility is threatened, uh, people can't plan for, uh, for coupling and for a future. Mm. So I think it gets right into the most intimate details of our lives when, when the markets don't materialize in the way that we need them. Okay, so, so real quick, um, I'm not quite sure that most of this was Weinstein. Um, Weinstein might be the, the go-between here, uh, and I think Harris may have been Speaking for the majority of this time, that, uh, that may be what's going on here. But anyway, the, the points are the same still. Um, you know, and, you know, Harris has, is coming at this, and um, I, I'm pretty sure it's it's him that is putting forth uh, these ideas across of uh, us not having this uh, this institutional third party. Uh, I'm not sure 
quite hear. I don't, I don't have the video. All I have is audio on this. So I can't tell who's saying what. And it's not really that important. Uh, the points still stand. And, uh, and we'll kind of sort this out as we go along. I just wanted to make that quick note. Let's continue on. Well, I worry a lot less about economics as the basis for social collapse. I, I don't think – I think it's, it's easy to, to overstate the extent to which growth has stagnated. I mean, we are at 4% unemployment. Uh, the, the economy uh, is not – I mean, this is not 1935. This is not even 1975. The, 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 there's still, you know, significant economic growth. To me, it seems like – the social fabric has been completely ripped apart. Uh, and some of that is due to social media and the fact that we coordinate with each other in a different way. But I think a lot of it has to do with loss of common values, like even the ability to have a common conversation. In order to have a conversation with one another, we have to take certain things for granted, like human reason, like objective truth. If we don't take these basic things, at least for granted, then how are we even speaking the same language? And it seems to me that a lot of those things have disappeared in favor of radical subjectivism that may f- make us feel good, but doesn't provide the common framework for a conversation and objective truth goes by the wayside. Because mm-hmm. if we can't agree on the facts, how are we going to have a conversation? You see this particularly in our politics, where it seems like there's two bubbles that have been created. And if you read Huffington Post, you are in a completely different world than if you read Breitbart. Right. Uh, and and my, my mom actually first noticed this in 2012, because she said, you know, I was working at Breitbart at the time, and she said, well, it looks like from Breitbart, Romney's definitely going to win. I was like, yeah, he's definitely going to win. And, she said, and then all my friends at work read Huffington Post, and they say that Obama's definitely going to win. Uh, and I don't know who to believe. And I said, well, I really don't know who to believe either because no one knows the answer to that question. But you can see that it's broken down in incredibly radical ways now because even things where there should be a common basis of fact people are disagreeing on, right? So to take the Senate race in Alabama, right? There's pretty good, reliable accounts that the Republican candidate in that race uh, is likely guilty of some form of sexual abuse of underage girls. Uh, and a huge percentage of the Republican base, you know, my party, my, my group, a huge percentage of them will outright deny that that's the case because they'll say this is a witch hunt. People are out to get Roy Moore. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a conspiratorial attack on Roy Moore. So that's one example from the right. Then on the left, you'll have examples where, you know, you, you will say things that are biologically true. Take a controversial example, like there is a male sex and there is a female sex. And if you say that, then people will lose their minds because you're somehow insulting their subjectivity. Uh, and you know, when, when you do that, it's hard to have a conversation because people will change the terms they're using. They'll change the frame of reference they're using. And, how are we, and, and then they'll toss reason out altogether. They'll say, you know, your specific bias as a person prevents you from even having a reasonable conversation. Right, your white privilege, or your background, or your ethnicity, or right. all of this prevents us from even discussing on a one-on-one level. Like I can recognize my background it having an impact on how I think, but if that is supposed to be a conversation stopper, then yeah. how exactly are we supposed to have a conversation? Right now, so what Shapiro is pointing out here again, I, this may get repetitive, but I, I want to really beat this drum home to everybody. Uh, what he's talking about there is who has the authority to say, and I think he's setting this up beautifully. Hopefully he'll drop the other shoe and say, somebody, we've got to have a third party come in here and say what is right and what is wrong. Because again, one side of the debate says, I don't even have a right to have a voice uh, in the discussion because I'm a, I'm a white male landowning Christian. So, by their standards, I don't even get to say what's right and wrong. I don't, I don't even get to have a voice in it. See? And why do they get to have the authority on that? See? Or why do I get to have the authority? Uh, because I use reason. 
in order to make my case. See, he, he's really I, hopefully setting up this whole authority idea uh, pretty well here. Yeah, so that, that's why identity politics is so toxic, in my view, because if, if, if identity is paramount, communication is impossible. Exactly. Like, like, because you haven't shared my specific experience or because you don't have the same skin color, you're not the same gender, there's no bridge between us, right? And, 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 you're, and there's no chain of reasoning from you to me that should trump anything I currently think. Because what I think is, is anchored to identity. Exactly. And we, and we don't share an identity. Yeah, well, we're atomized individuals yeah. kind of bouncing yeah. off one another as opposed to being able to form some sort of molecular bond. Yeah. And I think that that's completely, it's, it seems like that's completely collapsed. Right. Right. And is, do you think social media is the main engine of that collapse? Or is it just we were headed there anyway? I mean, obviously Fox News and the fragmentation of media precedes social media. So we had our echo chamber. Yeah, I mean, I really don't think it's social media. And there was, a, there was a study that came out from, I think it was Harvard, actually, uh, reported by the New York Times, talking about how the impact of social media on polarization is overstated, that if you look at the most polarized populations in the country, it's actually older people. That people who are older are more polarized politically uh, and are having fewer conversations with people on the other side of the aisle than younger people. Uh, and younger people are obviously more apt to use social media. I, I really don't think it's that. I think that there is a ground shift in the way people think that's taken place even within our lifetime and is and has gained steam. Uh, and as I say, even basic concepts like reason are being thrown out in favor of a philosophy of, of feeling because maybe it does come down to lack of success for, for people. Maybe people do feel that they can't succeed in other ways, and so the way that they feel fulfilled, the way that they feel whatever need they have for fulfillment is by wallowing in themselves. Mm. You know, if, I can't, if I can't find fulfillment in the outer world, then I will look inside me, and I will look at what makes me special. And we've all been taught that we're special by Barney. And therefore, since we are all special, then you saying anything that disagrees with me is taking away my specialness, and that can't be infringed upon. You can actually try to look at the history of these ideas. Like, for example, you mentioned white privilege. And I, at some point, tried to track it down, and there's some two-page, it's not even an academic paper, so you know, unpacking the knapsack in the late 80s coming out of Wellesley. Or, you know, intersectionality comes out of, apparently, UCLA Law School. Hmm. A lot of these ideas actually began as kind of minor, interesting ideas, heuristics, that couldn't support a, an entire epistemology. And what happened was is that you had some sort of a vaguely approximate concepts um, that got pushed so far beyond their domain of applicability that they led to a kind of madness when they became sort of the substrate for thought. You can't really have conversations where, you know, white privilege is, is, a, is a barrier. If Ben has a drinking problem and I have a gambling problem, we may not be able to understand each other's uh, addictions uh, Directly, but if I think about Ben's problem in I asked you not to talk about that publicly. <laughs> Step one, admit that you've got a problem. <laughs> uh, the issue is that uh, this idea of being able to hack empathy and hack understanding by using our own personal experiences, our lived experience, to use the jargon, um, and the felt experience, in order to empathize across these dividing lines, uh, shows this incredible failure of imagination. It's as if there was no screenwriter who was able to write both male and female characters mm. that men and women you know, identify with. And so I think it has to do with uh, pushing 
interesting but very limited heuristics so far beyond their domain of applicability. You can track each one of these things using uh, Google engrams uh, to find out where they came from. Right. It seems to me that we're struggling, and it's, it's not just us, all of us are struggling to find a way to capture meaning and value in the context of a rational worldview. And, uh, and I think that is a, a challenge that just doesn't go away. That is a, kind of a perpetual challenge insofar as we understand the situation we're in. We need to find ways of talking about that so as to converge with a basic life plan with seven billion strangers. And I mean, one difference between us is, is what we think the value of religion is in that picture. Okay, before we get too far into this, and, and we're not going to get too far into this whole thing before, uh, but but what Harris was was talking about there was, was this idea that um, okay, so inter- intersectionality, intersectionality it basically says that okay, if you if you're a white Christian male, you really have no place in the conversation with somebody who doesn't have that lived or shared experience. Uh, so for a, for a black uh, poor woman, you really have no place to speak into her life. Uh, now she can speak into your life. She can say, "This is what um, the deal is F- from my lived experience perspective." Uh, but but you really have no uh, foundation from which to respond. <clears throat> that's that's really what um, what Harris was talking about, and, and he's he's critiquing that. He's saying that that's a bad thing. It's uh, when he's saying that it's going to lead to something that, uh, that where we can't like fill out the epistemology. So in other words, we we really can't know or have knowledge based on that idea. Uh, it, it can't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It's very limited. Runs into it runs into a brick wall essentially. And he's pointing out again. Um, you know something that I think Shapiro is going to jump on, jump all over. Uh, th- that uh, they have that authority of their lived experience. We, you know, somebody else on the other side might have the authority of reason, but who gets to say which is right? And again, again they're they're really hovering around the issue here, and, and I keep beating that drum, but that's really uh, what's what's being discussed here and what's being set up. Uh, we may not be able to get into it too much this week. Might have spent some time next week, uh, but they're getting ready to, to bring God in here, and let's see what happens. So, just to, just to get a little bit, bit of the, the context here, what, you are you're an Orthodox Jew. What does that actually commit you to with respect to belief? I mean, what, what do you believe that I don't believe that is salient here? Okay, you know, so I'm an atheist. So, well, let's see. We're, in case you in case in case you had that, gives you so, a clue. Yeah, I, 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 this, this is an, I hadn't picked an up am, on that. This is going to be so awkward interview. now. Yeah. Uh, you kids have fun. This is Ali G. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I believe in a creator of the universe. Uh, I believe that uh, he set certain guidelines for human behavior, that he cares what happens to us. Uh, I believe that he endowed us with, uh, in the American sense, certain inalienable rights that uh, accrue to us as virtue of being human. you know, from a Judaic perspective, which doesn't really impact public policy so much. One of the reasons that I think we can have a conversation is that when it comes to public policy discussions, uh, I try as little as possible to refer to biblical text, which means I almost never do. Um, <clears throat> mainly because what would an appeal to authority that you don't believe in do? I mean, it's, it's a waste of time. Uh, so in the areas where I think we can actually have a conversation, where we're not talking about the value of kashrut or keeping Sabbath, which I think has very little 
you know, relevant input for public policy and the kind of social fabric building that we're talking about doing. Uh, the stuff that I think is important where we disagree is man-made in God's image created, uh, taking the premise by, by faith that God created us with certain inalienable rights, uh, endowed us with the capacity to choose, endowed us with the capacity to reason, uh, and cares about what happens to us. Right. So... Um, Not sure if you can say right any more cynically yeah. there, but you know, well, so, one so, word can do so much. <laughs> uh, un- unintended, but and yet, so <laughs> I mean, so so what I'm interested in is in a worldview that could be rebooted or rediscovered now. I mean, just imagine we lost all of our, you know, we had a, a, all the libraries burned, the internet went down, we lost all of our texts. How would someone rediscover this thing? Now, I can, we can make an easy case that we could rediscover science. You know, it might take some time. But if the literature of Judaism, in your case, were lost, it, it seems to me patently obvious that whatever is true about reality is still there to be discovered. And, and if, if there's some part of reality that is ethical or spiritual or divine uh, or spooky... It's there, it, it is there to be discovered by sentient creatures such as ourselves. So what would, how would you reboot religion, the, the religion so, that's true? Because you, you are by accident born a Jew. Right. Right. And there's, you know, there are a billion people in India who weren't. Mm-hmm. And I must imagine that on your account, they have, by sheer bad luck, the wrong version of this story. Well, I mean, so Judaism is actually not quite as exclusive as, as a lot of other religions with regard to this. I mean, Judaism actually says that as long as you fulfill seven basic commandments, like don't kill people, don't steal, don't eat the flesh of a living animal, uh, mm-hmm. that, that you actually have a pathway into heaven. So Judaism is not particularly exclusive, and we actually try to discourage converts. So it's not quite the same as some of the other converting religions uh, in monotheism. But as far as what's discoverable, I would agree with you. If, if, if the Torah were to disappear tomorrow, it would not be discoverable, which is why there is a, a necessity for revelation in the Jewish view. Right? The idea is that revelation was necessary, not that revelation was unnecessary, and that if people had not been graced with revelation, they would have come to this on their own. But, but the, the principles you just gave me, you don't think those are discoverable? Those are discoverable, right. So these right. Are the, so the, and, and that's the reason why I say that I think that the principles that are granted through revelation hmm. are not necessarily... I, I think that they they caused a ground shift historically from certain ways of thought to other ways of thought. Like the advent of Judeo-Christian thought changed the way of thinking. Mm. But I think that they are also things that you can discover through contemplation, for example. So all of the things that I said about free will and reason and the presence of an unmoved mover, that's more Aristotelian than it is Judeo-Christian. Right. right? And, that, and that is stuff that was essentially discovered through philosophy, not through revelation. So that is the stuff when I talk about the necessity for reason. Uh, that, that's the stuff I think that is more relevant. Now, I think that you do need a religious system in order to inform people who are not going to sit around philosophizing all day uh, what are good and bad modes of behavior. Right. And- right. So that's a, that's a really strong point by Shapiro there uh, because that's one of the weaknesses of uh, – relying on pure reason in order to come up with these things. So, so Shapiro would say that we would, we would come up with Sam Harris's, um, foundation for morality or, or his, uh, or, or his moral structure of things and how society should be put together on, on reason that we could, that we could discover these things purely on reason. Now I disagree on that point, but I'm not going to go there. Um, 
the, the point that Shapiro is bringing up is is to say um, what what we really need revelation for is for those who aren't going to sit around and think through all of these things and decide for themselves using their pure reason that these are the right things. Now, I think that's that's a valid argument to say that um, you know my son who is age eleven is not going to sit there and intellectually reason to discover what I want as a father. Okay. He's just simply not going to do that. Uh, What he needs is for me to reveal to him, as Shapiro is pointing out, what I want as a father. And by the way, this, this imagery is all over the scripture. We've talked about this before in the podcast, this imagery of father. So, so yes, there are some people like Sam Harris and maybe Eric Weinstein and Ben Shapiro and some very high-powered intellectuals that could reason through all this and come up with the same uh, moral structure for our society that Holy Scripture dictates. Maybe. I, I, I could argue against that, I think, pretty effectively. Um, however, um, let's, let's grant that point. Um, what, what, uh, what Shapiro is pointing out here is that not everyone is going to do that. So unless we're going to elect Sam Harris as the dictator of morality to everyone, there's a problem. We need divine revelation. We need revelation from the father, not just a father. See, because when when we attribute, there's a danger in attributing that that kind of power to somebody. Even if Sam Harris was was a perfectly clear thinker and he could think perfectly through every possible situation and could dictate to us all the moral knowledge we needed to know, um, in order to make him the authority, the, the, the objective authority for all of us, we would all have to agree <laughs> to that. Um, otherwise, we would all have to think through everything just like Sam Harris has thought through everything in order to arrive at those moral conclusions. So this would have to be done by each individual on an individual basis just the way Sam Harris has thought through it in order for us to coexist as a society. I hope that makes sense. And that's the point Shapiro is making, is that we need the divine revelation because not all of us are going to think through these things logically and rationally. And we need a source outside of ourselves to uh, to put some guardrails up and to say, no, 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 this thinking is out of bounds. Okay? That's that's really what Shapiro is going for here. And, it, you know, Voltaire thought the same. So I, I think that the, the notion of a but, dual... But is it important to believe that those good and bad modes were approved of or discouraged by an omniscient being? I mean, can't, can't we just chart a course toward greater fulfillment, greater peaceful collaboration based on just an, an intelligent analysis of what it is to be social So I, I don't think you can unless you're willing to acknowledge that reason, the capacity to choose, the capacity to act in the world, mm-hmm. that these things exist. And that has to be done based on assumption because you actually oppose some of these things, right? Like you don't think free will exists. Yeah, right. but so, but I also don't think you need free will to live a moral life. Right, or, I've never really yeah. understood that position, so we'll have to get okay. into it. But, yeah. right, um, but, it, but you know, to, to me, if, you, if you're going to have a conversation with someone and convince them, then we need to agree on the value of reason. The value of reason is not something that evolutionary biology suggests. Right? What, what, what does reason have to do with evolutionary biology, per se? It's a, mode of, it's, a, it's a mode of action that is more likely to preserve your species. It doesn't create objective truth. The notion of an objective truth that exists apart from you and it would exist whether or not you were living. This is not something that can necessarily be gathered from science alone. Right? You have to make certain assumptions about the universe and the way that your mind reflects what is present in the universe, right? as Kant would, would argue. Well, so, it's true that, that a, an evolutionary perspective on 
ourselves suggests that we have not evolved to know reality perfectly. I mean, we, you know, if, if you believe that we are apes that have been selected for and, and, and all of our cognitive architecture is built by virtue of its adaptive advantage in, in evolutionary terms, yes, it, it's hard to believe that we are perfectly designed to do mathematics or anything else that is, is true. But you do feel that we can still gather objective truth. But, so. you, but, but, but that, even that picture suggests a wider context of minds more powerful than our own that could have evolved or our, our own future minds. I mean, this, it's like there's no... Uh, uh, why would you appeal to minds that have not yet evolved or future minds as opposed to just a creator who put us here with certain capacities? Well, no, because, because that we... I would argue we don't have any evidence for what we do have. Ev- okay. So now there's, there's where I would really go, just go after Harris like full bore. Um, because I, there is plenty of evidence and you guys have heard me talk about, um, uh, about, uh, the evidence for the, for the resurrection, these sorts of things. I think we have plenty of evidence, uh, for, for a creator. He says, there's no evidence that that is a major mistake in this debate. And I think Shapiro's going to hopefully take him on, on this. Um, and, and the other thing that Shapiro's hitting on, if you remember back to our Bonson and Stein debates, that was the thing, uh, that, that, that Bonson was just, just nailing Stein with. It was the fact that, um, he was borrowing from his faith tradition in order to make his argument. See, because Holy scripture does set up reason, uh, as as a major portion uh, of how we know things, we we see this all over Scripture. You see this in uh, Romans one, where we can uh, see from nature that God is real and that He exists, and we can know things from nature. And that and that's the argument that Shapiro is setting up is that reason actually comes from Holy Scripture, right? Uh, and so and, and the thing that Shapiro is challenging him on is is why why would you attribute it to this thing a evolution rather than a divine creator who created these things and and Harris's answer to that is because we have no evidence for a divine creator major major mistake in, in his reasoning here let's see what Shapiro does with it and we got to close it off here for this week evidence for is that we're here we under we understand a lot about the mechanism that is operating now that got us here and that is causing us to be the way we are we can see our relationship to other life forms. We know that you know, we can look at chimps that share 99% of our DNA, and they obviously share a lot of the evolved precursors of our own social and cognitive architecture, but they have no idea what we're up to, right? So they're cognitively closed to most of what we're doing and most of what we care about. And by, by analogy, we know that we could be cognitively closed to what we might be capable of in a thousand years now. I mean, that, that, that our sense of what engagement with the cosmos I know, but, if promises, you admit, but I guess the, I guess the argument is if you're, if you're arguing that we're cognitively close to certain things, then why are you arguing which specific things we are well, cognitively no, well, close well, I'm, to? No, I'm just saying that once you, once you admit it's possible to not know what you're missing, factually, ethically, spiritually, I mean, just in, any, in any domain of inquiry, it's possible to come up against a horizon line where the known meets the unknown. You sound kind of religious here. Well, I, you, you, you wouldn't be the first to say it, but it's, it's clearly possible not to know what you're missing. And if you, I mean, if you kill, I agree. You should come with you, me to synagogue. If, if you kill the, the hundred, <laughs> see, you now that's that's funny in a sense. But but Shapiro's making a strong point here. See, not only is the the flaw in pure reason. See, and this is this is where I, I, I get so frustrated with Kant when he critiques pure reason. He, he he fails to bring up some of these points, and I, and I think probably it was because he too was convinced that we did not have a reasonable argument for the existence of God. Not 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 one that was 
pretty rock solid, like the evidence for the resurrection that we can trace through. And I can take you guys back to that argument if you'd like, or just go listen to how to defend your faith in five minutes and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, but, but, but a couple of major chinks in the armor of pure reason is one, not everyone's going to, going to, going to reason through that. And two, even somebody like Sam Harris, as he is admitting here, openly admitting, he doesn't know everything. See, and we need divine revelation to reveal to us all we need to know that we couldn't ever, again, my, my biggest case in point to all this is the sixth commandment. And I think that's the one thing that I would like to challenge some of these guys on, like Harris, to say, okay, let's talk about the Sixth Commandment, which is do not commit adultery by, by our account. Now, what, what reason would take us to the conclusion that we should not commit adultery? That's, that's what I'd like to hear them talk about. What reason, how would reason bring us to the conclusion that two men uh, should not be married? See, because that, that's attributed to purely a, a religious belief that two men should not be married. But there is, is all kinds of reasonable arguments one could make that would support the Sixth Commandment. But I think, humanly speaking, we have a difficult time getting to that conclusion. Therefore, God just went ahead and said, hey, this is the deal. And if you want to find out reasonably why this commandment is here, go ahead and test it. Anyway... We're just getting into this, and uh, we're going to have to close it off for this week. Um, But, again, go to the website, figure out how you can uh, contribute to the Water Well Project. We'll continue on with with this debate next week, get more into the meat of it, um, and also um, have have some really uh, fantastic guests on here to kind of support the cause. All right, we got to go for this week. We'll see you next time. What you saw, where you went, or how much it cost Instead, won't you tell me all the words that give me salvation How he lived and how he died